How many of you are, gonna, are, are ready tonight to get into the book of Revelation? Ready to get into the Revelation? Let's pray together for Revelation to come to us as we look at the Revelation. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you gave us this Revelation, that we would have a word. that we, You said, Lord, if we read it and do what it says and hearken to it and take it seriously, that there is a blessing in it for us. And, Lord, you gave us this word. You didn't give us a book that we can't understand. You gave us a book that we can understand. And so we ask you to open our eyes tonight and help us, Lord, to be a church, a people that is ready for the return of Christ and ready to bring a word of comfort and encouragement to very troubled people in troubled times. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. Out of this last book in your holy Bible, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn to somebody and say, you better perk up and listen. You're going to need it tomorrow. You're going to need it by tomorrow. I love the holy Bible. I tell you, I, I love the, the Word of God. Um, you know what the Bible is? It's the only book on earth that didn't come from earth. The Bible is the only book on earth that didn't come from the earth. It didn't come from anywhere in the earth. It came from above. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Well, all includes the revelation. And the revelation is therefore profitable. Amen? So we're not looking at a book that cannot be understood. Now, uh, let's just dive right in. I'm going to talk to you tonight. We're going we're to do three things. We're covering the end-time river, the end-time army, and the end time building. And clearly we're talking about the end times. Earth is not going to go on forever. There is a the end, like there is with a movie. There is a the end when it comes to history as we have known it. And the revelation is what gives us the end. We see the end. As a matter of fact, tonight we're going to look at time coming to an end. So, Let's just recap a little bit. Last time we finished having covered the first five trumpet judgments. Remember, there's 21 judgments, and they happen right in a row. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And I got to tell you, they get worse with each one. Our God is not only a God of love, but He's a God of holiness. And because He's a God of holiness, He is a God who judges. And we've just got to understand that and get out of this politically correct notion that if he's a God of love, he'll never judge. No, because he's a God of love, he judges. So, we looked at the first five trumpet judgments in the ninth chapter of the Revelation, and the devastation in their wake is severe. With the sounding of the fifth trumpet, we witness these weird, strange, Spielberg-like, although really not Spielberg-like because they're real, locust-like creatures ascending out of the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit is what the demons dreaded when Jesus cast them out. They begged Jesus, don't send us into the abyss, into the bottomless pit. Even demons were afraid to go to this place, the bottomless pit. Can you imagine falling into a pit where there's no bottom, where it never ends, it never stops? The bottomless pit. 
The devil himself also is the one that released them. They are supernatural demon spirits, and they were granted the power to torment men for five months. Now, when I read something like that, I say they're given the power to torment men for five months. You might say, well, why, Jeff? That's kind of strange. Why the five months? And you know what my answer is? I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. If the Bible says it, it's so. And that's in God's reckoning. But it's for five months. For five months, these demon-like spirits will torment men. They'll want to die and won't be able to die. And this is part of the judgment that falls on a Christ-rejecting, rebellious, unrepentant world. There is a price, folks, for sin. And as I preached on Sunday, there is a price, and there's got to be justice divvied out for it. There can never be a sin in God's universe without it being answered, either at the cross of Christ, see that up there, or at the judgment seat, at the great white throne judgment. In one of those two places, all sin will receive judgment and justice. And so when a a nation or a world continues to flaunt their sin in the face of God, there comes a time of reckoning. There's a line in the sand, and only he knows where that line is. And there is a line with an individual. There is a line with a city. There is a line with a nation, and there is a line with a world. And when that line is crossed, God knows it. And when that line is crossed, God says, I must judge. And that's where the world will be when this great tribulation, seven years in duration, happens. The world will have reached the place where God said what He said with those in Noah's time or those in Sodom and Gomorrah. I must judge. There is no other solution. Nobody is repenting. Uh, It's an unrepentant world. I've got to answer it. Sin requires judgment. So now we come to the last two trumpet judgments about which an angel has already warned the inhabitants of earth with three woes. Woe, woe, woe. If God gets one woe over you, you're in trouble. But three, you better pray. <laughs> so now we come to the sixth trumpet. And as we come to the sixth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9, we find four angels posted of all places at the Euphrates River. Let's read Revelation 9, 13 to 14. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now hold that thought. Let me remind you of something. Remember that we said the events in Revelation are not always chronological. Now, you do have the seal, trump, uh, the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. That's chronological. But there are times when, J- when John will jump forward because Jesus took him that way. He'll jump forward or go backward in order to focus on a particular event. In chapter 9, he jumps forward and talks about the Euphrates River, giving us a prelude to the full story that is covered again in chapter 16. We're getting a little prelude in chapter 9 of what he's going to cover really thoroughly in chapter 16, and it has to do with the Euphrates River. 
So keep in mind that when John begins here in chapter 9, he will pick up again in chapters 15 and 16. So let's just go with him. Let's just flow with him because this is the way Jesus took him. The altar and four horns. That's what he's seen. In chapter 9, 13, we're shown an altar with four horns constructed on its corners. Now, in the Bible, when you see a horn, it is always a sign of power. It's a sign of authority and a sign of power. And I want you to remember now, we're seeing this horn at, at the altar. Recall that the altar is the place where the prayers of martyred saints are going up to God, and they have power with God. Their prayers do. God responds by releasing His righteous judgments in answer to the cries of these martyrs. And what are the martyrs saying? How long, Lord? How long will it be before you avenge us of our blood? You know, I, I look at all the martyrdom happening in our world today. There's somebody being martyred right now, somewhere in the world. In, in our day, generally, by someone in the Muslim religion, being martyred for being a Christian. Are you a Christian? Yes. And they're martyred. Those who kill them think, well, you know what? We didn't really, you know, we got away with this. There's no God. Uh, we're not really worried about any consequences. What they don't realize is when they spill that blood, that blood cries out to God in heaven. Amen. And the prayers they pray, and, and I've read some of those prayers because I've read the stories of recent martyrdoms and how these moms and these dads, and, and, and I'll say it, these children, say, oh, God, Jesus I give myself to you, and they're taken home. You know what? That prayer goes into heaven. And there comes a time in the revelation when these prayers cry out to God and move God's hand, and it is those prayers from martyrs that play a key part in releasing the judgments of God. In verse 14, John sees four angels bound at the Euphrates River who had been prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. You know, we serve an incredibly sovereign God. If we were standing, folks, right now at the Euphrates River, if we were there, and we could see, God could open our eyes like he did Elisha's servant. Remember, he said, oh, no, we're, we're toast. We're surrounded by the army. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes. And his eyes were open, and he saw the chariots of fire and all the angels all around the city protecting him. And then the prophet said to him, there are more with us than there are with the enemy. He, he saw angels, and John is seeing angels. And if we could have that same kind of discernment and stand at the Euphrates River and peer into that spirit world, we would see these mighty four angels right now awaiting their command from God. They're awaiting His perfect timing. They're standing there right now. They're right there now, waiting for the Word when they will dry up the Euphrates, we're going to see later, and to allow a 200-million-man army to cross. They will literally dry that river up. Now, why the angels are posted here at the Euphrates is a mystery. Um, we do know the Euphrates River has always been a physical and a psychological boundary 
between the east and the west? I want you to listen to the size of this river. It's 1,800 miles long. Well, there went all Texas rivers. Okay? It's 750 feet wide, and it's 30 feet deep. So the Euphrates is an awesome, gigantic river. And you know what? In chapter 16, we're going to witness a mighty angel dry it up, making way for a 200-million-man army to cross from the Far East to take part in the Battle of Armageddon. An angel is going to dry that river up. And John leaves no doubt as to the grim mission of the four angels in chapter 9. Let's read it in verse 15. He says, The four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. And what were they prepared to do? Slay the third part of men. Oh, folks, listen. No wonder the Bible says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No wonder the Bible says, Our God is a consuming fire. No wonder the Bible says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? No wonder the Bible warns about rejecting the call of God through Christ. No wonder, no wonder the Bible warns us over and over again to take God seriously and His Word seriously and the coming judgment seriously. When the sixth trumpet sounds, a third of human life will be destroyed. Now, I want you to keep in mind something here. Already, a fourth of mankind has been killed in the seal judgments. So technically, the sixth trumpet will signal the death of one-third of the remaining three-quarters of the population of the world. That's a heavy thought. You're talking about hundreds of millions of people. Now, heretofore, it's been the ecology destroyed by thirds, but now it's going to be mankind. John describes the warriors of the 200-million-man army, and I want us to look at this description. Verse 17, and thus I saw, he says, the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, this is that 200-million-man army, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. Now, you know what? These colors he names are very much like the colors of desert camouflage. So that's one possible interpretation here. He's seeing what the 200 million man army is wearing, desert camouflage. Here's another interpretation. It could be modern-day military helicopters equipped with nuclear weapons which would account for fire and smoke and brimstone issuing from their mouths. You know, a, a nuclear blast is the only thing that releases brimstone like the Bible talks about. Now, when we read about God, for instance, judging Sodom and Gomorrah, I read it again, and I was very careful to take note of what I read. It's very clear. The fire fell from heaven. It wasn't man started. It, it fell from heaven and consumed the cities. Maybe that's what will happen here. 
I don't know, but I cannot escape, being a 21st century guy, I cannot escape that John's description so often sounds nuclear. I don't know. I don't know. I do know I don't want to be there. But this would account for the fire, smoke, and brimstone, listen, coming from their mouth out of a silo. This view might be further reinforced by John's next words. Look at verses 18 and 19. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and by the smoke and the brimstone, which came out of where, everybody? Their mouths. He saw an opening, that's all, which makes me think silo. I don't, again, I'm not sure. But John is describing, remember now, first century guy, trying to describe a 21st century phenomenon. So to him it looked like a mouth, but it's just an opening. And, and from the opening came this fire and smoke and brimstone. And then their power, he says, is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents and had heads, and with them they do harm. Well, what's clear to me is there will be something like unto a thermonuclear blast, whether it comes from heaven or whether it comes from something man-made that God foresaw, which He could easily do because He's God, whichever of the two, it is devastating. I want you to think about a third of the population of the entire world. We've already seen a quarter of it go. Now there's three quarters left, and now a third of that three quarters is taken. So, Jeff, how could God do that? Well, stop a minute. How could he vaporize Sodom and Gomorrah? How could he take out the entire world in the days of Noah? Amen. So, well, that, that, that's just mean. No, it's not mean. If you say that's mean, you don't understand sin and holiness and God's nature. He is not a God of relativism. He is not a God who says, well, you know, my truth changes with cultures and times and centuries, and, and my truth is adapted to the culture in which it finds itself. No, no, no. He says, my truth never changes. And, and, and because it never changes, what is right never changes, and what is wrong never changes. And when wrong happens, and there is no repentance ever, and there has been warning after warning after warning after warning, remember, God gave Noah's day 120 years to repent. And after Noah preaching for 120 years, he had not one convert. 120 years. Finally, God said, nobody's going to repent. Noah, get into the ark. God shut the door. And it began to rain. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah. Well, I take that literally. How was it? There was no repentance. People just took the word of God casually. They did not. They went about business as usual. Marrying, giving in marriage, buying, selling, conducting business. And yet, Noah's day was totally reprobate, totally perverse, totally violent. And finally, God said, that's it. The line is crossed. That's what's going to happen here. Um, John's description 
may depict cavalry weaponry using fiery weapons of destruction, poison gas, brimstone, which can be a description of colossal explosive power, such as nuclear bombs. Many of the countries identified by Scripture right now possess nuclear capability, and the unleashing of it on the Asian continent, for instance, could end in the slaughter of over a billion people. Now, we're going to revisit this again in chapter 16, but I want to tell you, church, there is a whole lot of shaking coming to this world. We next encounter one of the most amazing and sad sights in all the Word of God. I find what I'm about to read more amazing than what I just read. Because in spite of all the calamity, all of the obvious judgments of God, all the terror and uncertainty, men refuse to repent. Look at verses 20 and 21. And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, you know, if I missed one of these plagues, I'd be saying, thank you, Jesus, where are you? But no, not these people. Look what it says. Yet they repented not. Everybody say repented not. I want you to look at the hard hearts that are involved in this judgment. Uh, 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 First a quarter of the population of the entire world, then a third of that three quarters, and yet still they won't repent. And look what they're doing. Look what they're involved in. They repented not of the works of their hands. And what was that? That they should not worship devils. Everybody say worship devils. These people in the last days are worshiping devils. And then... Idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can't see, can't hear, can't walk. Neither repented they, and here's another list, of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So you've got violence, you've got witchcraft, you've got sexual perversion, and you've got theft. Running rampant in this world, falling under the judgments of God. It's really hard to imagine a world more spiritually dark than the one we're reading about right here in these verses. I just want to pick two words out of what we just read, sorceries and idols, just to give you an idea of what this last day's uh, world population is going to look like, sorceries. He He said, neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries. The Greek word there is pharmakia, and of course, we get from pharmakia, pharmacy. You know what it's telling us? That, that, that the last day's world is going to be a wash in drug abuse. Now, let me tell you something about drugs. Here's what a lot of people don't understand. Do you know that, that people involved in witchcraft throughout the centuries have always involved drugs in what they do and that drugs are a gateway into the satanic world? If you want to plug into the underworld, the dark world, Satan's world, You do it through the gateway of drugs, drug abuse. When I was a teenager, and and some of you won't recognize this, some of you will, but a a guy came out, he was a professor, he was named named Dr. Timothy Leary, and he he had a little slogan for my generation, tune in, turn on, drop out. I did all three. (laughs) Sounds good to me, tune in, turn on, drop out. But when I turned on to drugs, it opened my mind up to the world of darkness, to torment, to confusion, to fear, to destruction, to loss of motivation and purpose. And and, and I'm going to go this far. 
whatever it is that messes with your natural God-given state of mind. Pot does that. Oh, come on, Jeff, you can go to Colorado and do it legally. So, Colorado is stuck on stupid. I mean, if you want a state full of people walking around with no motivation, just sitting around eating and smoking and not caring, I don't. But see, pot messes with your natural chemical balance, and that's dangerous. It opens you up to the satanic world. That's what it means. Sorceries is from the Greek word pharma. Kia, sorceries, idols of gold, idols of silver, idols of brass and stone, wood. They can't see, hear, or walk. And we, we tend to think of idolatry as an Old Testament thing. Oh, that's what those ignorant people in the Old Testament did. They didn't know any better. Or that's what people are off doing in some, some remote part of Africa because they don't know any better. They have little wooden figurines that are idols, and they worship them because they're backward and don't know any better. But we don't do that anymore. Oh, Yes, we do. We are as idolatrous as any nation, past or present, has ever been. John sees idolatry as an extremely prevalent thing at the end of time. During the Great Tribulation period, a lot of idolatry going on. Remember, here's what an idol is. Let me tell you what an idol is. It's anything that takes the place of God in your life. How's that for simple? Anything that takes the place of God in your life. It can be a person. It can be a place. It can be a thing. But, but you worship it. See, whatever has your heart has you, and whatever has your heart has your worship. And, and idolatry is everywhere. I mean, we've all had idols, I promise you. And some of you tonight have one. I try to never have one, but, 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 you know, you find that you've got to get with Jesus every day because we're in a very idolatrous, toxic culture. You can worship sex, drugs, a person, a career, yourself. And boy, can I think of some Hollywood celebs that worship themselves. They think sending a selfie of themselves across the Internet world is God's gift to mankind. You can tell they worship themselves. And they want their followers to worship them. And you know what? A lot of them do. They literally worship these people. I could name names, but I won't because I don't want to give them any traction that they don't already have. But we worship these people. Why? They're no different from you and me. So they're a little prettier, a little more handsome, a little more attractive. So what? Have you noticed what happens to them once they get old? All that goes away. Gravity has a way of humbling everybody. I really do like looking at these before and after pictures of the Hollywood celebs because they think they're so, uh, you know, so hot. But then they show 30 years later. Oh. Hey, it comes to a point where nothing's going to help you. You're going to get old. 
Okay? So, but, we, but they're worshipped. I'm telling you, in our culture, they are worshipped. We've even got a show, American... As for the Old Testament kind of idolatry, it might interest you to know that at least one half of the world is very idolatrous. All of India, three-quarters of Africa, great pockets of South and Central America, all of Asia, including Japan, are practitioners of idolatry. They are involved in the actual worship of figurines or some part of God's creation like sun, moon, stars, some animal, and so on. They worship. It's idolatry. And it says, when these judgments start to fall, they refuse to repent of their idolatry and turn to the true and living God. America is so steeped in idolatry, the worship of materialism, sex, pleasure, money. Peter wrote, by whatever a man has overcome, to that he is a slave. I, I love being overcome by Jesus. Amen? Let's get overcome by Jesus because I want to be a slave for Jesus. That's what doulos means. That's the Greek word for servant, doulos. We translate it servant, but it means slave. Paul said, I'm a doulos of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. All right, as we come to chapter 10, we encounter a mighty angel holding a small scroll. Let's read what it says. Verse 1, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. Boy, that sounds like something I read in Revelations 1 when it was describing who? Somebody said it. Give me a J. Jesus. Okay? With a rainbow over his head, his face shone like the sun. Isn't that what it said about Jesus? And his feet were like pillars of fire. Isn't that what it said about Jesus? Like bronze in a furnace. So as there was an interlude now in chapter 7, we saw there was an interlude between the 6th and 7th seals. Remember that? Chapter 10 that we just began is an interlude between the sounding of the 6th and the 7th trumpets. It's an interlude. It's a pause. Chapter 10 and 11 are not only the middle of the book, but it is the smack middle of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, many believe, including me, that the mighty angel in verse 1 is Christ himself. He has to be because the way he's described. Let's read it again. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He's surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. It's exactly the way he was described in Revelations 1. His features closely parallel the description of the glorified Christ of chapter 1. John goes on to describe what he does. Watch this, verses 2 through 4. And in his hand was a small scroll that had already been opened. Now get this and tell me this isn't Jesus. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. That's got to be Jesus. And he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. That's, that's my Lord right there. Okay? And when he shouted, look at what happened. I love this. Seven thunders answered. And when the seven thunders spoke, John says, I was about to write. But a voice came from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said 
and don't write it down. When I get to heaven, I'm going straight to John. What did they say? Tell me what the seventh thunder said. I want to know. You can't keep it anymore. We're in heaven now. Tell me. That bugs me. I wish God had let me know. Tell me what it said. Because you have seven thunders. Shh, not telling. But you know what else this shows me? That as John saw, folks, he wrote. Because he's about to write what he just heard, and God said, don't write. So with this revelation, he didn't have it, and then months later, retell it. But he had pen in hand as this revelation was unfolding, and he wrote right as he saw it. Because God said, don't write this one, John, stop. While we do not know what the seven thunders said, our best guess is it had to have something to do with the horrendous future times coming on planet Earth. Now, as we come to verses 5 to 7, the angel makes a stunning announcement. Here's what he says. Time, as we have known it, is about to end. Read verses 5 to 7. Here we go. Then the angel I saw, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand toward heaven. That's Again, I'm sorry, but that's got to be Jesus. One foot in the sea and one on land. He's raising his hand. God's not going to let anybody but Jesus do that. Now watch this. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens. This is talking about God and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. So, so much for evolution. We've just been, he covered everything there that God created. He said... Read it with me. There shall be time no longer. Well, let me tell you when time stops. When eternity begins. So what we're being told here is that we're just a breath away now, a heartbeat away now from eternity, never-endingness beginning and history as we have known it, wrapped up, done with. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Now, as noted earlier on, the number seven is the Bible number for completion. As we draw near the blowing of the seventh trumpet, there is a growing sense in the revelation that all things in God's timetable are about to be completed. Can you say with me, there's an end coming. The angel is informing John, time's about to be consummated. The end time days, here designated as the days of the voice of the seventh angel, indicates that the last half of the tribulation will quickly occur. And much of it will revolve around the most important building in all the world. Everybody say with me, the temple. Now, in your book, we're starting chapter 6. For those listening by radio, if you have the book, The End, uh, we're, we're starting chapter 6. That's page 65. And we're in chapter 10 in the book of Revelation. Now, in the last chapter of, your, of the book, your book that you're holding, The End, the chapter we just finished, 
closed out with a mighty angel who is likely none other than Christ himself, and he's descending from heaven. He is seen by John having one foot in the sea and another foot on the land, and he announces that time is no longer. This event takes place midpoint through the Great Tribulation. History as we have known it is coming to a close. There's three and a half years left. That's it. The mighty angel holds in his hand a small book that has already been opened. Now let's read verses 8 through 11. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So can you imagine being John here? Wow, use your sanctified imagination. He goes up to this angel. It's got one foot in the sea and one on the land and one hand raised up saying, time is coming to a close. <laughs> can I have that scroll, please? <laughs> I mean, I can't even believe he walks up, but he does because God told him to. Can I have that scroll? I want that scroll. God told me to get it from you. So, so I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, get this, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach got bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Clearly, this mysterious little book contains the events that, that he's about to describe. This little book contains prophecy. And John is said or told to ingest it, literally eat it. Absorb the information contained in the book into your mind and being, John. Now, that's the way I study the Bible. Can I be honest with you? I believe we're to ingest it. Let me just pause here and digress a minute. This is the way you read the Bible. You eat it. And you know what? It's like honey. I love honey. We have a big thing of honey at home. And, and I almost never pass it without grabbing it and taking a little hit of honey. I just love honey. It's God's sugar, okay? Now, he said the Bible's like that when you eat it. It's sweet. Sweeter also than honey, David said, and the honeycomb is the Word of God. But we're to ingest it. That means think about it, ponder it, mull over it, chew on it, consider it, regurgitate it during the day and think about it again. Make the Word be a part of you. Receive with meekness the engrafted Word which is able to save your soul. The Word is to be engrafted, assimilated, ingested, digested. It's a part of you. It's a part of you. I've read the Bible for so long now. I started reading it when I was 18. The grace of God touched my life, changed my life. In a jail cell at 16, I, I, got, I had a mighty experience with the Holy Spirit at 18 and got called. And, and with that 
experience with the Holy Spirit, a ravenous hunger for the Word of God. I could not get enough of it. And I'm still there today. I cannot get enough of it. When I get up in the morning and it's time for me to go get with God, I can't wait to go get with God and get into that Word and ingest it. It is sweet like honey, but also you will find that it can become bitter in your stomach as well. And here's why. I really take the dual sweet and bitter taste that John experienced when he ate this scroll to mean sweet are the promises and plans of God, but often the judgment and justice of God is bitter. I mean, I read all the time the prophets. I've read the book of Jeremiah over and over and over again since 2008. Just 2008, I started reading it. I've read it many, many times. And, and you know, it's bitter because you see what happened to the people of God. It's sweet going in, but it's bitter in your, in your soul. And I want to tell you, I have that sense over where our world is headed. I love to read the Word of God. It is sweet to my taste, but it gives me a bitter taste in my stomach. It's like eating too much cotton candy at the fair. You wolf down that cotton candy and candy apples and all the junk. It's sweet going in, but then when you go home, The Word has a bitterness to it because it tells you what is coming. And when it's judgment, that's bitter. And that's what John experienced. So he ingests it. And what John is about to see taking place on earth is bitter indeed. In verse 11 lies the prediction that John's revelation would go to the entire world. And has it? Oh, yes. He, the, the, the Word of God to him said, what I'm going to show you is going to go to peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. That means the whole world. Now, as we come to chapter 11, it's important to note that from chapters 11 through 14, John is going to pause in the chronological sequence of things to focus on some key events going on during the first half of the tribulation period. Let me give you an example of what this is like. It's like a person driving 60 miles an hour down a highway. Little towns are zipping by. And your passenger, if you're the driver, and you're, here you are, you're going 60, 70, maybe 80 down the highway. Here goes towns. And the passenger says, would you slow down and get off at the exit and let's drive slowly through the towns and take in the scenery and don't be in such a hurry? So Jesus is doing the same thing. He's allowing us to see some close-up highlights of the first three and a half years of the tribulation before launching into the second half. So we could say things are slowing down. Let's look around. Let's see what the first three and a half years looks like. John says in chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, Then I was given a measuring stick. And I was told, go and measure what, everybody? The temple of God and the altar. And count the number of what? Worshippers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now let me explain this and we're done tonight. Um, first, this passage tells us the temple must be rebuilt. Amen? He said, well, well, where is it? Well, you know what stands where the temple used to stand? You know what's there? The Dome of the Rock. And I've been in that thing. I went in it. 
And that is sort of, um, that is the epicenter of the Muslim religion. And all that's going on in there is this bowing down and this quoting of Quranic verses and so on and so forth. But that's what's there now. This verse tells us the temple must be rebuilt. That's very important. I want you to hold on to that. Second, here's what it tells us. The Jewish people will reinstitute the Old Testament form of Judaistic worship using the temple. Because it says, it says, count the number of worshipers. Well, you're not going to have born-again Christians in a rebuilt temple worshiping in, in, in the way Old Testament Judaistic people used to. We worship in spirit and in truth, in, uh, in the power of the Holy Ghost, in the name of Jesus. So it tells us here, and here's what's going to do it. Antichrist is going to come on the scene. The way he's going to seize power is one of his first moves will be to finally be the one who cuts a deal, who brings a treaty, uh, a peace treaty. I'm excited. <laughs> who brings a peace? What did I say? A treaty? <laughs> Hallelujah! Glory to God! I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's try this. A peace treaty. He's going he's to cut a peace treaty between the Arabs and the Jews. And when that happens, he's going to tell the Jewish people, sure, go ahead and build your temple, and sure, return to your Judaistic form of worship. Sure, I'm all for you. And the Bible says they will have made a covenant with hell because three and a half years into it, he changes. He walks into the rebuilt temple, he goes into the Holy of Holies, and from there he claims himself God. And he demands to be worshipped. And when he does this, it throws everything into high gear where the Great Tribulation is concerned. And it kicks off the last three and a half years. So to me, what this shows us is prior to that Last three and a half years, the temple's rebuilt, and the Jewish people are back in there worshiping in their old Judaistic ways, thinking everything's great. Peace, peace. Here's the third thing. The Antichrist is going to break that peace treaty with Israel, and he says right here, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's the last three and a half years. He will break his peace treaty with Israel, and Gentile nations, Antichrist will be Gentile will trample the holy city for 1,260 days, for 42 months. And he is stopped, and it is stopped by the second coming of Christ. We're going to stop here because I can tell you've overdosed, and so have I, because I'm starting to talk weird. Let's stand up. Tree <laughs> yeah. speedy. What did you learn tonight? Oh, I learned all about a tree speedy. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, the Word of God is so serious, isn't it, folks? Isn't it powerful? Isn't it a powerful Bible? Oh, yes. Let's lift our hands to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the soon-coming King of kings and Lord of lords, the mighty angel who will stretch his 
foot across the sea and across the land and lift his right hand and say, time is no more. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Thank you, Lord.